Son of God, command these stones to be bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. All right, very good. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 4, first 11 verses. There's chairs in there. If you prefer a chair, you can bring them in. Okay. Well, there's so much to be said about the temptation of Jesus. Look at the timing. Just after he was baptized. He just did what God said pleased him. Would you think that once you start pleasing God, you might be exempt from temptations? Often, that's when you get tempted more. Why? It's like Revelation 12, where the dragon got beat, and so he was extra mad and went to make war with the woman's children. Yeah. Why does Satan need to tempt the people he's got already? You know, you can expect warfare with Satan when you start pleasing God and doing what's right. Now, I want you to think a little bit. We're just kind of introducing this, first of all. Can you see some contrasts between Jesus and Adam, especially in this first temptation? It's with food. Yes, it's a food temptation. Where was Jesus? Wilderness. Where was Adam? Garden, paradise. Um, what had Jesus been doing for this first temptation? Fasting. Fasting for 40 days. What had Adam and Eve been allowed to eat of? Every tree in the garden except one they could eat from freely. Do you see the contrasts? If you just knew those points, would you expect Adam and Eve to resist the temptation or Jesus to resist the temptation? I mean, under the circumstances, it looks like Adam and Eve have a lot more to help them overcome the temptation than what Jesus did to turn the stones to bread. Yeah, Caleb. Um, wasn't two trees like um, the, like wasn't there also the tree of life? There was, but as far as I know, they were not banned from eating of that tree. Yeah. yeah. There were two special trees, but then there were lots of other trees that they could eat from. But the contrast is Jesus was victorious in the temptation, Adam fell. So Jesus, you know, he defeated Satan in a, in a contrast to what, what happened with Adam. Think about Israel and the comparisons and contrast between Jesus and Israel. Think about when Israel was those 40 years. Where were they? And where is Jesus? And how long were they there? And how long was Jesus there? 40 days. And um, how was Israel fed? Manna. With the manna that comes from God. And what has God given Jesus to eat during these 40 days? Nothing. Now, when Jesus says, it is written. Do you see how he says that three times, once in each of the temptations? Do you know where all the quotations come from? Deuteronomy, which is Moses talking about what? The, the time they've been in the wilderness. He picks the passages from the very context where God tested his son Israel in the wilderness. But where his son Israel fell, Jesus prevailed. 
So I think there's a contrast here with, with Israel, and Jesus is God's ideal son, his true son. So, the first thing Jesus does after he's baptized is he does battle with Satan. So, what does the devil say in the first temptation? If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Well, that devil is saying, you know, you ought to take advantage of being God's son. You know, if you're his son, you know, you ought to use that because you're hungry. Turn these stones to bread. Now, sometimes I think we kind of scratch our head. What would have been wrong with that? He is hungry. He's Jesus. He's God's son. He's got the power to turn him to bread. See anything wrong with that? Caleb. Um, that would be like proving that the devil was right. Well, I guess you don't really want to give in to Satan, but I think there are deeper issues than that. Well, if he was supposed to be a man like us and like experience the same weaknesses and things like that, then using his power to alleviate those would kind of defeat the purpose. That's a very good point. Jesus needed to deal with temptation as a man. If he can, you know, use his miraculous ability as an Aladdin's lamp to get anything he wants anytime he wants it, that's hardly an example for us. It's hardly, you know, defeating Satan as, as a human being. You know, that would be giving him a, a special edge that would really not he wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice for us in that in that um, so is he going to use his special abilities for his own personal desires or for God's will here's another point how is Jesus going to get his food is he going to act independently or is he going to trust the Lord's will for what he eats you know who led him into the wilderness The Spirit. Who hasn't given him any food to eat in the wilderness? Yeah, the Lord. Is he supposed to just get his own since God hasn't seen fit to provide it for him? No, he trusts in the Lord. So look at what he says back. He said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, he cites the text where the Israelites were in the wilderness and they depended on the Lord for their food. And he sees he needs to depend on God and his word and his will. His life doesn't depend on food. Isn't it cool that Jesus overcomes temptation with the very resource that's available to us? His, God's word. We can use the same thing. We've got the same, same uh, weapon. We've got the same sword that Jesus used to behead Satan. Okay. Um, also, I don't... Think what the what Satan may have missed, what Satan may have like missed was that um, I don't think Jesus needed to be reminded that he was hungry and that he was God's son. But he's sort of basing this on that. It's like he's saying, "Well, if you're God's son and you're hungry, then hey, use what you got. Take care of yourself, Jacob." It's really cool, dude. He was willing to give up food. Um, like I, a lot of times we think of our basic needs as like air, water, sleep, and food. And like we think of all the times Jesus was willing to give up food so that he could either have a spiritual productive conversation like with the Samaritan woman or here when he hadn't eaten for a long time and he was still willing to give up word because his true source of life was from God. Exactly. I mean, how hungry would you be after 40 days with no food? To me, though, the thing that would be most tempting in this situation would be not the fact that I was hungry. I think I could defend against being hungry, but the fact that he's trying to have him prove if he's the son of God. I mean, if I were in that situation, someone's saying, if you really are Cameron, then do this. I'm like, well, I am Cameron, so I can't easily do this. Or bad example but <laughs> it's a horrible <laughs> example actually um but if someone's 
testing whether or not I could actually do something, and I'd want to do it and prove them right, or that, or prove them wrong that I can't actually do it. He's saying if you are the son of God, you, I would think that'd be more of a temptation for him to prove that he's the son of God. Here. You may be right. I'm taking this not as the question if you're the son of God, but kind of the presumption. If you're the son of God, then do this. Not that he's questioning it, but that he's assuming it and saying, almost like saying, since you're the son of God, do this. That's a debatable issue. Uh, if, if you're right, then that would be another part of the temptation. Look at lessons. Where does the devil attack Jesus? Absolutely. Did the devil ever do that today? When does he tempt you to lose your temper? When you're angry. When you're angry, when you're frustrated, frustrated when you're tired. tired. Isn't that true? Wonder why he does that. Wouldn't be as tempted to lose temper when yeah, we're I mean, He piles on at the very moment he knows that's your weakness. That's when he's going to tempt you. You know, he's not stupid. You know, you'd tempt somebody then. You know, there's just all kinds of application of that. You can think about a lot of different temptations. And the devil figures out when you're the most vulnerable, when you're the weakest, when you're the most exposed, and that's when he tempts you. This is logical. You're going to tempt Jesus with anything after 40 days of fasting, tempt him to use his miraculous power to feed himself. Um, here's some ironies. Jesus was hungry, but yet he was the bread of life to feed others. You know, there's others like that. Jesus got tired, but he was the one who gives rest. You know, Jesus had people call him the devil, but he was the one who cast out demons. Jesus died as a criminal, as a sinner. But he came to save people from their sins. Jesus was sold for, for silver, but he gives his life as a ransom. Jesus won't turn the stones to bread for himself, but he gives his body as bread for men. Think about the bread of the Lord's Supper. So there's just lots of ironies in that. You know, that, that the one who, who is the source of nourishment for all of us was hungry. You know, just shows you how much Jesus lowered himself to service. All right, comments or questions on all that? Well, the second temptation. Devil, devil takes him on a field trip here. Where does he go? The holy city. And where? Which would be the high, a high place of the temple. And what's he telling me ought to do? Jump. Jump! Throw yourself down! Now the devil makes that temptation more persuasive by doing what? Quoting scripture. Yeah! You know, it's not just Jesus who can quote scriptures. Satan can too. You know, if Jesus wants to use scripture, well, Satan knows a few of those. And so he quotes from Psalm 91, where it says, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Hey, you need to throw yourself down so the angels will come and rescue you so you don't get hurt. Now Jesus has said, I depend on God's word. He says, okay, there's God's word, now depend on it. You know, test it. See, see if the system works. What do you think about that? What's wrong with that? After all, it, it is in the Bible. It's testing. Yeah. You know, since God promises to keep us in danger, is it okay for us just to create the danger and see if he'll do it? Really, that's a lack of trust also. You know, we're not allowed to do that. And Jesus answers, you know, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, 
if you really trust, you don't have to test God and get him to prove himself. Now, there's some great lessons in this. One is, Satan's versatile. He got whipped with the stones to bread temptation. Did that stop him? No, he just regrouped and launched a second attack. You know, have you ever done this? Have you ever beat back a temptation and thought, Oh, this is awesome! I, I conquered the devil, and next thing you know, he's blindsided you from the other side and he's got you. While you're gloating in your victory, he's already plotting his strategy to come in the back door. So, Jesus didn't have time to, to you know, pride himself on, I got him on that first one, because the devil's already got another strategy. And what do you think about, what, what can we learn from the fact that Satan cited scripture? Absolutely. Do you see what Satan did that twisted this scripture in Psalm 91? Twisted the meaning here as was that um, God is going to protect us, not that we should be testing God to protect us. Yes. Really, he took it out of context because the context in Psalm 91 is the man who trusts in God, not the man who tests God. The man who tests God, there's no promise for him in this passage, so he's really taking it out of context. Yeah. And here's something else he did. What did Jesus reply with? What's his words? On the other hand, it's written. On the other hand, it's written. What does that tell you Satan was doing wrong with this? It wasn't all of it. It wasn't the whole picture. He was taking one passage, but he wasn't considering in the light of the other passages that relate. Can one passage take out, taken out of context be a false doctrine? Absolutely. You know, you need everything. What if I say, you know, there's a, pa there's a phrase in the Bible that says there is no God. Is that true? There is. Remember what it said? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So the Bible says there is no God. Well, that's uh, taken out of context and not considering the whole thing. So when you either take something out of its immediate context or you don't consider it in the light of everything the Bible says, then you're going to twist the scripture and you're going to come up with a misconception. Besides that, I believe the context of Psalm 91 shows it's a figurative passage and Satan's taking it literally. I don't think it was ever intended to be that way. You need to be careful whenever Satan's the one quoting the scripture. So do you think if he had, he had done this, he would have died? <laughs> well, I don't think there was any chance of him doing it. You know, I, who knows? I mean, probably God has ways of you know, protecting Jesus, I suppose. Who knows? I don't know. It just, it wasn't going to happen. If, if Jesus had done this, we'd all been in big trouble. Yeah. Good thing he didn't. It really is more convincing when Satan uses scripture. It is. Because it seems right then. Right. You know, Satan's more effective with many of us when he's in disguise. And, and think about this. You know, there's always a temptation to kind of manipulate God and kind of try to force his hand. I'm going to create this situation. I'm going to just kind of see what God will do. That, that whole attitude is not trusting. You know, if you trust, you don't need proof. You don't, you don't just put God in a situation where you say, all right, God, now I want you to show yourself. You know, show me what you can do. That's just that's so disrespectful and so not trusting in God. All right, comments and questions on that second temptation. Where's that verse about the fool? Psalm 14, uh, 1, I believe. Guess. Um, like, we may look at this and, like, the first thing I thought was, well, that's a stupid temptation. Why would I would be tempted with jumping off something tall? I was like, and then when you think about it, like, I've been, had some really stupid temptations, like, for my friends. It's like, hey, 
climb that tree and jump off, see if your legs break or something stupid like that. <laughs> and it's like, no, but like really, and it's like amazing what you do would be like, oh, it's like if I do it, I mean if I live, then I'll, then you know I'll get all this glory and everything because we're like focused on ourselves and like seeing what we can get. And I've seen some people who, like been tempted to be the stupidest things, they end up in the hospital or something. But it, it's still kind of cool because like when you really think about it, I mean, everything he tempt, tempts Jesus with really makes sense if you think about it. But still, just to see him resist it. Especially in the context where Jesus just said, well, I depend on the word of God. All right, if you depend on him, show us. He said he'd do this. Now just prove your trust. You know, see if it'll work. I mean, I think in the context, it doesn't seem so weird. I think it's really good point that like a lot of scripture is taken today to mean something different and we see lots of people going down that road so we think hey if a whole all these people are following this scripture then there must be at least some truth to it um i think we need to make sure that we have other scriptures to back it up because if we don't then there might be a problem yeah good point third temptation Satan takes Jesus up to a very high mountain, shows him all the kings of the world and their glory, and what does he offer? To give it all to him. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? He'll give him all the kingdoms, they'll all be his. Only one little catch. What's that? He already has it all. Well, well not yeah, not totally. Not exactly. Now, what Satan's offering? What's the catch? You fall down and worship. You got to worship me to get it. You know, the devil offers him lock, stock, and barrel the whole thing if he'll worship. That's pretty amazing. But think about, think about what this temptation really meant to Jesus. Was this the only way for Jesus to get all the kingdoms of the world? No. How else could he get all the kingdoms of the world? By following through with the plan? Yes, God would give things, these things to him. You know, God promised all authority to Jesus. But... What is what is God's plan involved for Jesus to get all the kingdoms? Yeah. The devil's offering a shortcut. Here's the crown without the cross. You can have all the kingdoms and you don't have to go through all this anguish and terrible suffering. Just bow down and worship me and you'll get them all already. The Satan has the power to offer that. Doesn't it? Who did the kingdoms belong to? Who's the prince of this world? Now, he didn't have ultimate authority, but who was everybody in the world following? Satan, at that point. So I think, yes, I think he could have turned people's allegiance to Jesus. Because I think he, was, he had sway over almost everybody. If he hadn't, it wouldn't have been a temptation. But, he always uses deceit. I think Jesus could have seen through that. Well, yeah, but I don't know. That's just how he works. I don't know. I think he could have delivered in the sense that he could have gotten people to, to you know, be Jesus' subjects. But Jesus would have been the devil's subject. He would have been, because he would have bowed down to the devil, so he would have been like the vice president of the whole operation. But it would have been easy. And Jesus just says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He quotes that from Deuteronomy as well. And he's just saying, it's never good if it's wrong. You don't worship anybody but God. If this is wrong, I can't do it. But I want you to think about some things. Are you amazed that Satan would put in this kind of a bid for Jesus? Offer him everything? What does that tell you about Satan? He's not in it to get the people. He's in it to crush Jesus. 
That's the reason he started this war against us, is because Jesus won the victory, and so he wanted to take us down, his children. Good point. But he wants to take Jesus down. He's got the others. He hasn't got Jesus. What is the devil willing to offer to get a righteous man? He's willing to bid it up all the way to everything he's got. If you have a price, Satan will meet it. Would you give in for, you know, $10 that you could just grab? What if it was $100? What if it was $1,000? What if it was a million dollars? Is that what it's going to... You know, would you give in for a so-so girl that you could have an affair with? What if, would you give in for a pretty girl? Would you give in for a pretty girl that has a lot of money? <laughs> you know, whatever. You know, just think about different things. If you've got a price, Satan, he'll, he's willing to go high to get the right people. And he offers shortcuts. He's always saying, oh, you don't have to go through that. No, I can do this for you easier. You don't have to sacrifice and suffer all that. There's an easier way to get this. And he always offers compromises for a good end. You know, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great to have all the kingdoms? All you have to do is bow down and worship me. It's no big deal. You know, he's always offering something good if you'll compromise your soul for it. <laughs> so I think these are just tremendous, tremendous you know, lessons. Do you have some thoughts and comments? I'm not going to say one or two more things about the temptations, but what other thoughts and comments do you have? It reminds me of, like, when we were studying Genesis with Joseph in Potiphar's house, where he, and with Jesus and all the temptations, he doesn't say, you know, Joseph didn't say, well, you know, we might get caught, or, like, this isn't smart. And Jesus doesn't say, well, no, I have a different path. I needed to go down this path instead. They just say it's wrong. I can't do that. And that's how we need to be. We can't, like, even if we have a good excuse not to do it, we just need to say, I can't do it. Amen. Think of the principles for overcoming temptation. First, it's his trust and faith. And the shield of faith quenches all the fiery darts of evil. He trusted God every step. His word. You know, isn't that a big key? He knew the word. He had it in him. You know, every time he was tempted, he knew the passage to repel Satan with. Um, you know, remember 1 John 2.14. Middle part of the verse, I've written to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Why did they overcome the evil one? Because the word of God abided in them. If you know the word, then when you're tempted, you'll be able to say, no, it is written. But if you don't know the word, you won't have the sword to defeat the temptation. And then... The other thing you can say about Jesus that's a principle of overcoming temptation, he resisted the devil. Here's one thing about Jesus. He never did what he knew wasn't right. Can you say that? None of us can. But that's how he overcame temptation. He just didn't do what he knew was wrong. You know, what's the secret? How can I do it? How can I overcome sin? Don't do the wrong thing. What what, 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 what do you have to do? I mean, this is so complicated. No, it's not. Just don't do the wrong thing. It's not as hard as we make it. You know? Just do the right thing. That's all Jesus did. Comments and questions. Okay. Um, also, one of the things... Um, that um, would make it easier is he already had all this in heaven. Yeah. And he brought 
And if he had, if he gave in to the devil, do you think he would have had all that in heaven? Well, I suppose, you know, he could have done whatever, but I think it's mostly his, des his desire to do his Father's will. His desire to trust God and follow his will in his life. You know, I mean, Jesus didn't even have to come. He could have had what he had in heaven. But he wants to do what his Father says. It's interesting. It would be so much more powerful when you've been so for eternity, when you've been the one getting failed and people giving into temptation and for uh, and leaving you and betraying you, it would make it so much more powerful and you would be hate it so much more if once you were tempted and you were in that position. Interesting thought. Yeah. Good thing to think about. Cass. And you also you don't see him like giving an inch, like going halfway and be like, oh, okay, well maybe you're, you know. Maybe I'll just turn one stone into a loaf of bread. Right, and it's like it's like it, it reminds me of what Joe works and you talked about in your classes at leadership camp. And I, I don't remember. I think it was you or Joe, but you said something about how like whenever we are tempted that we shouldn't like give a feet, but we should just cut out and run, like literally just like run away and like run out of the room. And like you don't see Jesus like giving an inch or you don't see him going a little bit, but like you just see him completely saying no and rejecting it and stopping it there and not going back and not looking back. Amen. Excellent points. Other thoughts? Well, we go from there to the beginning of Jesus' career, 12 to 16. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land, in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. So, Jesus goes into Galilee. Now that's where he'd been raised, in what city? But he leaves Nazareth now, and where does he settle? Capernaum. If, if Jesus had a hometown during his ministry, it was Capernaum. Though he didn't have much of a hometown. But he does, at least for a while, reside in Capernaum. Where was Capernaum? In Galilee. Yes. Do you know where? On the north side of the sea? Yes. On the Sea of Galilee, sort of on the north, I guess you'd say kind of on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and that was the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, by the way God had divided the tribes out. And he mentions how this fulfills what Isaiah said, that the people in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, way up there, would be the ones who would first see the light dawn. Now, in, 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 in Israel in the Old Testament, that area was controlled by who? In the divided kingdom, Israel. Israel, the northern kingdom. And so, which kingdom was the first to go into captivity? Israel. So, the territory that first went into captivity, the, where, where the darkness came first, is the first area to receive the light. That's the way God had prophesied that it would be. And in fact, if you look at 2 Kings 15.29, even before Israel went into captivity, it says in 2 Kings 15.29, in the days of Pekah king of Israel, 
Tiglath, Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon and Abel, Beth Micah and Genoa and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. That northern region was carried captive even before the nation of Israel as a whole. So the first one to be darkened, first region, was the first one to receive the light of the Messiah. Isn't that exciting? And this is, I believe, the seventh time already Matthew has connected an event in Jesus' life with prophecy of Scripture. All right, comments and questions through verse 16. All right, 17 to 22. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So, Jesus begins preaching what message? His name is John. Same as John. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message of the hour. We need to act and prepare for the kingdom coming by repenting because the way we are, we're not fit for it. That's Jesus' message. And as he's walking along, he sees these two brothers who are fishing. And what does he say to them? Yeah, you follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what do they do? Absolutely. Isn't that amazing that people just follow some perfect stranger who says, come follow me and I'll make something out of you? Was he a perfect stranger? See, that's what I always thought growing up. And I always thought, man, I don't think I'd do that. If some stranger came up to me and says, follow me, I probably wouldn't follow him. I always kind of felt bad about that. <laughs> and then I read in the Gospel of John, and I found out that these guys already knew Jesus. They'd already spent time with him. They'd already heard him preach. They were not full-time followers, but they did know Jesus well, and they'd seen him like turn the water to wine at... Uh, uh, the wedding feast in, in Cana, and things like that. So they're not just following some guy who comes along and says, follow me. They knew Jesus. They knew how great he was. That's why they were willing to do this. Now, who were those first two that he calls? Yeah, Simon, that Jesus nicknamed Peter, and Andrew. Do you realize that there are five Simons in Matthew? This is the first one. There's like ten in the Bible as a whole, in the New Testament as a whole. Simon is a really common name. Um, there was a famous, you know, person about a couple centuries earlier that was a Simon. And that, that may have had something to do with that, I don't know. Um, and then he goes on and he sees these other two brothers and they're mending their nets and he called them and they followed him. I think this is a great passage to show us how to be a disciple. What can you see in this passage that shows you uh, the nature of true discipleship? You follow. In other, why did they follow? Because because Jesus said to. People who, Jesus followers, you know, Jesus disciples, listen to the commands, the orders of their Lord. When he says to follow, they follow. That's, the, that's one of the first steps in discipleship. You've got to do what your master says. That's it. You, you don't think, you know, independently. 
You do what he tells you. Now, what else can you see in this that shows you what it means to be a disciple? Radical commitment. Drop everything immediately. Isn't that amazing? They drop their work. Their work. Because fishing for them wasn't a hobby. It's how they made a living. You put Jesus ahead of your whole life. All of your old values and priorities, they leave their nets. And what do James and John leave as well? Yes. That's going to be a theme in this book of Matthew. The idea of the precedence of the call of the Lord over family ties. He's going to say that pretty often in here in one way or the other. You know, when one guy in chapter 8 will say, Lord... Permit me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. You listen to me over your father. In 10, 21 and 22, he says, brother will betray brother to death, father, child, children rise up against parents, cause them to be put to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name. There's going to be conflict in families. You're going to have to put the Lord above your family ties. Then in 1034, he says, I've come to bring a sword on the earth and to pit a man against his family members. But if you love a family member more than me, you're not worthy of me. And so forth and so on. There's going to be several other things he's going to say in the gospel that show that the Lord comes first. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you, you live the Lord's will in your life. Does that make sense? And what's Jesus going to make out of these fishermen? Fishermen. Yeah, fishers of men. Fishermen are going to become fishers of men. Um, and Jesus is going to make them into that. You know, uh, Jesus is going to equip them to really be able to bring others to him. Wouldn't it be minimus? Instead of fishers, instead of fishing for men? Maybe so. Would we call them menners? But that was something we fished with. <laughs> you got it, at least. Alright. Is this the same incident as in Luke 5? Great question. Don't know for sure. I'm inclined to think so, but I'm not sure. This seems different because here it says he's walking by and there he was like teaching or something. But yeah. yeah. But that again, like if it was like that gives a little more context to how they knew him and you know it wasn't just randomly. I think this may be just kind of a, an abbreviated, just kind of the main points and Luke expands it. But that's an open question. It's possible that Luke is a different occasion. So where is Cana in relationship to Capernaum? You know, uh, I think southeast, but I don't have my maps. I'm not the greatest in here, so I don't know if I've actually got something that would show that for sure. So uh, is it very far away? Uh, yeah, it is mostly east, a little bit south. You know, it's a ways. I think like 20 miles or something like that. That's why I was wondering about the water turned the wine there. Would they have been there to see that? We know they were, the disciples were, because John 2 tells us. Yeah. Must have been a big wedding, huh? Yeah, it must have been. They went with Jesus. So John 3 says, John 3? John 2. Cana is to the west. Did I say east? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. You know, I'm much better with left and right. It's <laughs> left and a little lower. East and West never have to be. doesn't mention him by me. name in John 2, he just says disciples. Yes, mean? but look at John 1, where you see which disciples he has. In John 1, uh, verse 40, 40 it's uh, Andrew and then Simon. And then there's the other disciple there, which is probably John. Uh, so at least some of them were. Other thoughts? Yeah. Then he's already called them in John 1. That's a key point. There are three stages in the career of the disciples. There's the stage of loose association. 
That would be John 1, where they spend some time with him, and then they go back to their jobs and so forth. But he already changed his name and everything. He did change his name. But this is the second stage, where he calls them to constant companionship. And the third stage is where he actually names them as his real representatives, the apostles. So there's three stages in the career of these disciples as they become increasingly attached to Jesus. But Loose association, constant name? companionship, and then apostleship. Did he change his name in Matthew? It, no, it just mentions it in uh, John 1. That that's it says, that's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to make you in, you've been a Simeon, I'm going to make you a rock. Other Loose, questions are coming? Loose association, constant companionship. And then the apostleship. Well, uh, look at the introduction to this sermon. That's probably as far as we'll get, but 423 to 52. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demonic, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed them, him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Okay, the end of four is a summary statement. Jesus went throughout all Galilee doing what? Teaching. Teaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing. And, healing. and look at chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. It says almost the identical thing in 9.35. That Jesus was teaching and healing. And between these two bookends of 423 and 935, we have examples, chapters 5 through 7, of Jesus' teaching, kind of a sample of that, and chapters 8 and 9, a sample of his healings. There's like a bunch of healings in 8 and 9. So, he's teaching and healing. Here's what he taught. Here's his healings. This And this helps us, you know, when you look at, at this sermon in Matthew 5 to 7, according to verse 23, it's a sample of what? It's teachings on the kingdom. Yeah, this is the gospel of the kingdom. You know, this shows you the gospel of the kingdom. Now, let me say this. I don't, some of you know this, I'm sure, and some of you probably don't. This is a key thing in understanding Matthew. This is the first of five big sermons in Matthew. I may have already said that here, but I'm going to say it again. It's the first of five big sermons in Matthew, and they all end the same way. Look at this. There's a sermon in 5 through 7, and it ends in 728, when Jesus had finished these words. There's a sermon in chapter 10, and it ends in 11.1, when Jesus had finished giving instructions. Then there's a sermon in chapter 13, and it ends in 1353 when Jesus had finished these parables. And then there's a sermon in chapter 18, and it ends 19:1 when Jesus had finished these words. And then there's the sermon in chapters 23, 24, and 25, and it ends in 26:1 when Jesus had finished all these words. I think clearly Matthew is setting these out as parallel sermons. That's one of the key things in Matthew is he has these five big sermons. They actually all follow a block of narrative material and they're all followed by that statement when Jesus had finished something. Isn't that cool?
That just kind of gives you a feel for where Matthew's going. This is, we've already looked at this, but this is another parallel with Israel. Just like Israel, Jesus was called out of Egypt. He passed through the sea. You know, he went through his baptism. Then he went into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. And then he goes up on the mountain and gives the law. You know, the mountain of the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like the Sinai of the New Testament. That's where he gives his constitution. Jesus is sort of the new Moses. By the way, in what verse? Uh, no, maybe I haven't got that. I don't say, don't say that. Any questions or comments about this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount? What chapters did you say Jesus does his teaching? Five through seven, and then the healings in eight and nine. I think it's interesting that this is the first sermon Matthew records. This is kind of centerpiece for Matthew's work because this is the teaching that so much defines Jesus' whole uh, call and mission. This is his constitution. This is what the kingdom's all about. This is what a kingdom of citizens is all about. You know, he saw the crowd. He goes up on the mountain. This shows it's important. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And look at verse 2. This is one of the most exciting verses in the New Testament, isn't it? He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying. But do, what do you see in that verse? In action? Yeah. What else do you see there? He can't teach with his mouth closed. Yeah. <laughs> isn't this saying the same thing three times? He opened his mouth began to teach them, saying. It's like the Department of Redundancy's Department of Unnecessary Repetition. But the repetition here is not unnecessary. It's to make a point. This is big! You know, if he's going to say something really important, you've got to give it the right introduction. When Jesus saw the crowd, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, and now we've got the sermon. So that just shows, that's, the, that's a perfect introduction. Here's the drum roll to the greatest sermon of all. For which, stay tuned next time, which will actually be three weeks from tonight. Sorry about that. Next week's not my fault. The following week's not my fault either. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't me that scheduled the meeting two weeks from now. Uh -huh. so that puts it at September 29th. Very good. September 29th. What are you, where are you going to be next week? They're not going to be here next week. I won't cry too hard next week. Don't worry. Where are you going to be? Houston. Ah. So. We fly out next Thursday.